Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today I was pleased to interview Garrick Heilman. He's the head of research at Blockchain.com and a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. Garrick is ranked as one of the 100 most influential economists in the UK and Ireland. He's well known for his research on cryptocurrency, or as you'll hear in this interview, maybe we should use the term crypto assets, as well as blockchain technology. I hope you find it really informative. I know I did. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Garrick, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. So, Garrick, let's start on a very basic level. Can you walk through my listeners what cryptocurrencies are, how they utilize blockchain technology, and what you think people ought to understand about cryptocurrency? Right. So, starting with the name cryptocurrency, many would argue that that name is somewhat misleading today based on how things like Bitcoin and Ethereum are used, and that uh, a better description would be to call them a crypto asset. Uh, They are used for payments, and, and that's a term um, currency is a term we typically associate with payments and you know buying the proverbial cup of coffee. But today, things like Bitcoin are often used uh, more as a, an investment. Uh, many consider it to be digital gold and uh, use it as a hedge against financial instability, uh, concerns about inflation, and and owning an asset that uh, is is somewhat disconnected from the traditional financial system and banking system. Blockchain technology is another uh, concept that is actually quite confusing for many people. In fact, in surveys, we've seen people say they um, understand the least of kind of the the next generation technologies, quantum computing, artificial intelligence. These are things that people have a better understanding of than blockchain. People, you know, think that quantum computing is a more powerful and faster computer uh, or artificial intelligence, the robots that are coming to, to take our jobs, take over the world. But you ask them what blockchain is and you know, people are very confused by this, but in essence, it's a database. And so if you think of Bitcoin as the asset, uh, it lives on this database called a blockchain. And that database uh, keeps track of, simply put, who owns what. If an investor is looking to invest in, I won't use the term cryptocurrency now, I'll use the term crypto assets. What are some of the differences between the crypto assets? You mentioned Bitcoin, you mentioned Ethereum, and what should an investor consider when deciding which of these crypto assets they should invest in? Yeah, it's a great question. And I want to preface my answer by saying the following is uh, not investment advice. Uh, you should always do your own research. Uh, and also crypto assets are extremely volatile. I think many people have come to understand that you know the price of Bitcoin, its exchange rate against something like the US dollar can fluctuate very dramatically. Uh, this spring, it dropped 50% over the course of a few weeks. And even uh, in March of 2020, at the outset of the COVID crisis, it dropped 50% in a single day. So it's very important to understand just how volatile these crypto assets can be. 
Now, Bitcoin is the uh, oldest and largest crypto asset in terms of its market value and probably its total number of users. Uh, it's been around for coming up on 13 years as of January uh, 2022. That will um, mark the 13 year anniversary since the launch of the Bitcoin network on the 3rd of January 2009 by the very mysterious founders Satoshi Nakamoto. Ethereum uh, is kind of a, uh, you know, the second, well, it's the second largest blockchain network after Bitcoin. Uh, it was uh, invented in 2014 uh, by Vitalik Buterin, who's uh, not a mysterious uh, founder. He's out on Twitter and, and goes to events. You can, you can meet him in real life. Uh, and Ethereum really attempted to create uh, what we call a smart contract platform, basically a, a more general purpose computing platform um, that would allow for more expressive uh, computation, things we call smart contracts, to happen on top of Ethereum uh, that, that uh, actually get quite complicated as we, we get into the weeds on these. But basically, things like decentralized exchanges, uh, decentralized finance, non-fungible tokens or NFTs, which people may be hearing more about, these are a little easier to operate natively on top of the Ethereum blockchain than some other blockchains. Um, so those are the two biggest uh, that people may be aware of. Uh, stable coins uh, are something else that have grown, uh, you know, to be quite large. And these are uh, basically cryptocurrencies that are usually pegged to the U.S. dollar, meaning they're not as volatile as something like Bitcoin or Ethereum. They oftentimes even have U.S. dollars held in reserve in bank accounts that can be converted uh, in exchange for the cryptocurrency. So what they are attempting to accomplish is uh, basically making the US dollar more programmable and interoperable with blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Got it. So stable coins could be a sort of way to potentially protect the volatility of crypto assets. That's exactly right. And, and they were started in 2014 with Tether and many cryptocurrency exchanges embraced Tether because they were unable to get bank accounts regulation is still maturing around the cryptocurrency space and exchanges that weren't able to get bank accounts uh, adopted Tether, this surrogate US dollar, uh, as an alternative so that people who wanted to take risk off, you know, trade out of something like Bitcoin into something more stable, could trade into Tether and, and have an asset that uh, had a, has a direct link and convertibility into US dollars. How seriously are governments looking at crypto assets, given the volatility, and even if you uh, talk about stable coins, but how seriously are they looking at it to modernize their own financial systems? Governments are taking this all very seriously, uh, but you know, governments have been regulating and looking at crypto assets for as far back as at least 2013, when FinCEN, uh, a department in the U.S. Treasury, issued its initial guidance on 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 cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. So we've seen uh, regulation evolve, and as cryptocurrencies have grown in value uh, to, to now roughly almost $2 trillion in combined value, there's thousands of crypto cryptocurrencies, crypto assets out there like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, but, but uh, you know, it, it, the thing I've always said about regulation is that as, as cryptocurrencies have grown in value and, and become more widely used, and we think roughly $100 million people today around the world probably own and use crypto cryptocurrencies uh, that that you know these would become more regulated and and certainly um, you know in the US for example there's different regulators looking at different aspects of this uh, Gary Gensler um, head of the Securities and Exchange Commission is very focused on what is a security 
Uh, Bitcoin is not deemed to be a security. It's currently um, deemed to be a commodity and treated as such. So it falls under the Commodities Futures and Trading Commission. Stable coins uh, are, are another area that's getting a close look. And that's actually, I've argued, a category of cryptocurrencies that's going to receive more attention because it plays more in the wheelhouse uh, of, of things like central banks and in payments. Uh, we, we see, I think, more potential, at least in the short run, for something like a stable coin to be used for buying the proverbial cup of coffee uh, because of its link to the U.S. dollar than more volatile cryptocurrencies um, like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Is there truth to that story that the way Bitcoin sort of was launched was paying for a pizza? Well, that was the first uh, recorded publicly announced transaction using Bitcoin uh, for something in the real world. Uh, there was a programmer uh, based out of Florida who uh, pioneered a, a, a way to mine Bitcoin, which is basically to uh, run a computer uh, that, that earns Bitcoin uh, by helping to secure the network. Uh, so Laszlo uh, in Florida was very successful at Bitcoin mining, accumulated a large stash of Bitcoins, and in May of 2010, uh, put on the um, public Bitcoin forums an announcement that he'd be willing to pay, I think it was 10,000 Bitcoins, if someone would order and have sent to his house two pizzas. And I believe someone from the United Kingdom picked up the phone, made the purchase with a credit card, I believe, had those pizzas sent to Laszlo and, uh, and received 10,000 Bitcoins, which uh, was the first ever publicly recorded transaction. And, and today uh, is, is recognized as two, probably the, probably the two most expensive pizzas uh, ever purchased in history. <laughs> well, I hope that guy held on to those Bitcoin. It's <laughs> quite remarkable. Yeah, you know, yeah. We we also hear stories out of the UK of of a person who famously has been hunting around a uh, a a trash center, you know, where people's you know rubbish is sent, and and he lost a hard drive that supposedly has thousands of bitcoins on it, and uh, has been digging around and trying to offer the local council uh, some reward or percentage so he can try to recover this this uh, hard drive. So I don't know if that was the same person who bought the, bought the pizzas or not, but uh, yeah, people go to great lengths to uh, try to recover lost Bitcoins. Oh, I hope that wasn't him. I would feel really bad for him. <laughs> um, you mentioned that the, you know, they're thinking that this is more of a commodity than a security. And I recognize that I know so little about it, but to me on its face, it almost seems like it should be a security more than a commodity. What's some of the thinking behind making it a commodity? Right. Well, Bitcoin uh, is was not sold. Uh, and so that's one of the, the key elements of, of what's called the Howey test. And I'm not just full disclosure, not an attorney here. So uh, I, I need to be a little careful about what I try to say on this. But typically uh, to be classified as a security in the United States and, and elsewhere, something needs to be sold um, by the you know, kind of management team, uh, if you will, uh, of a project. And that's not how Bitcoin comes into existence. It's mined into existence um, by people running you know, computers uh, that are helping to secure the network. So it's not originally offered for sale by you know, an entrepreneur or, or a management team. It's, it's something you have to earn by contributing computing power to the network. Uh, now that's not the case for all uh, cryptocurrencies. Some of these are sold famously in 2017, controversially sold through things called initial coin offerings. And that's really when the Securities and Exchange Commission, I think, really first started uh, looking at this space quite seriously, because there were um, things that have been deemed to be securities sold, uh, tokens sold by a team 
with the expectation of profit. Um, and it's a collective enterprise. And these are some of the elements that are typically used in a, in a test of whether something's a security or not. Um, Bitcoin uh, does not meet that test. Uh, and so therefore it's been deemed to be not a security. However, other things, and I think the, the process is still playing out, um, what meets the test and what doesn't, you know, what, what coins might be subject to future SEC reg, you know, uh, actions, that's still very much an open question. And one of the clouds that kind of hangs over um, things besides Bitcoin in this space. And understanding that governments are looking at how to regulate Bitcoin, how are they thinking of using it to invest in, in terms of government assets themselves? Yeah, it's a, it's a really topical question because we just saw the first ever government, El Salvador, uh, not only implement uh, Bitcoin as legal tender, meaning it's a currency that you can use to pay your taxes in El Salvador, officially settle debts, uh, and, and there's rules even requiring businesses to accept it for payment. And sure enough, people have in El Salvador already used it to buy, buy uh, you know, a McDonald's uh, Big Mac, I think, and, and uh, uh, a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Um, but also the government of El Salvador recently announced that they actually were purchasing Bitcoin uh, for, for holding as an investment, in essence. And that was a first that we were aware of. Uh, you know, governments have held Bitcoin uh, since as far back as at least 2014, I believe, 2013, actually, sorry, when, when the Silk Road dark web marketplace was shut down by U.S. law enforcement and tens of thousands of Bitcoins were seized, those were subsequently auctioned off. But a lot of listeners may not know that today the U.S. government actually holds close to 70,000 Bitcoins uh, from a, a subsequent law enforcement seizure back in uh, almost a year ago, in November of last year, the Department of Justice announced a follow-on Silk Road uh, law enforcement seizure. And to my knowledge, those coins are still held by the U.S. government today. But that's a very different thing than what El Salvador has done, uh, which is actually go out and actively purchase and announce those purchases to the marketplace that, that El Salvador is holding Bitcoin, I, I believe roughly 500 at present. Prior to El Salvador's move, there have been rumors unconfirmed about uh, you know, uh, divisions of the Singaporean sovereign wealth fund, Tomasic owning uh, some crypto, uh, you know, the, the Singaporean sovereign wealth fund had invested in a cryptocurrency company. So that's not, wouldn't be a huge surprise if that's true. But, but to our knowledge, El Salvador is the first government to actually do this. How many others will, will continue or follow on is a really great question. I think, you know, certainly countries that own gold, and there are quite a few that own very large gold positions, would be wise to consider uh, owning Bitcoin alongside their gold for a number of reasons. Uh, for one, it's a hedge if gold ever uh, becomes less widely used as a scarce hard asset, as a reserve asset. And, and we've written research uh, on you know, comparing gold to, to Bitcoin and the pros and cons. Uh, there's there's reasons to own both is the is the short answer to that. But certainly, if you own gold, I think there's a strong argument, strong case to be made that you should own some Bitcoin as well. Uh, and furthermore, you know, we may see one day more use of Bitcoin as a currency. Uh, I think El Salvador is a bit ahead of the curve given where ma Bitcoin maturity is today. But it's not inconceivable that after kind of achieving wide adoption as an asset, it does become more widely used as a currency for payments. So there's two directions now that I want to go, El Salvador and back to governments. El Salvador, how complicated was it for them to now require 
sellers to accept Bitcoin and, and maybe because it's a smaller country, can that be translated into a huge country like the United States or would the amount of effort, cost, expense, education and so forth make it decades away? Yeah, you hit on a bunch of great points there. I, I, let me just start with the education component. So we are told that 70% of El Salvadorians don't have a bank account. And that to me suggests there's a very big financial literacy gap in the country, as there is in many other countries around the world, including many more developed economies. Uh, you know, we find in the US and elsewhere, actually not a wide understanding of how money comes into existence. Uh, many people don't realize that it's not the Federal Reserve or the government that's uh, producing the vast majority of our money. You know, people think of coins and you know bills in your pocket as as money, and and that does come from the central bank typically. But uh, that's a small percentage of of the money supply. Uh, you know, ninety percent or more of money uh, is actually uh, lent into existence by banks, and uh, that's not something that my my experience is widely known. Uh, it's certainly not widely taught in secondary education and, and even in some economics 101 uh, uh, classes. So the financial literacy challenges should not be underestimated, uh, not only in El Salvador, but around the world. And furthermore, there's a there's a tech challenge, uh, both in terms of, you know, again, you know, a country that doesn't have, you know, a high participation in the banking system probably has a lower um, participation, uh, you know, in online commerce. Uh, which you know predominantly uses you know check you know credit cards and, and other financial instruments uh, you know today, and and so there's a tech gap as well uh, that needs to be overcome. Um, you know the other thing about El Salvador that's you know not too common is that it's dollarized, meaning that it's adopted a, a foreign currency, the U.S. dollar, uh, prior to this uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, change. Uh, as its primary currency. Now, there's a few other countries that have done the same, Panama, Ecuador, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, to various degrees, and certainly a lot of dollars in places like Argentina. Um, but that's a relatively small basket of countries that that either don't currently have their own national currency or or um, aspire to, to um, regain a national currency. So for me, there's some question, I think, as to how quickly we would see other countries follow on uh, uh, El Salvador. Having said that, there are some politicians in Latin America that are certainly angling to try to quickly follow El Salvador and, and make Bitcoin legal tender in those countries as well. And at what point then do you think, whether it's in the U.S. or some other large countries, do we need to start educating students, whether in high school, college, or beyond, about crypto assets, whether it's the financial literacy aspect of it, the tech aspect, or they both go hand in hand? Yes, I, I think now is the time. Uh, yesterday was the time, and we should we should have been doing this years ago. People like myself have been uh, out, you know, lecturing on this, uh, developing research, uh, teaching materials for years now. But not nearly enough is being done. Uh, I'm really excited to see things like uh, in Los Angeles this summer. There was a summer camp uh, on cryptocurrencies. Um, I think focusing on on young people is is particularly important. Um, you know, we have a, just a, not, you know, a huge, huge uh, hurdle today for, for people to get on the financial ladder and start, you know, owning assets, owning a home and financial education, financial literacy is, is just, I think one of the, it's gotta be one of the top priorities for society around the world. Um, so now is the time to, to get better educated, to focus on this. Um, 
And, and as regulators, I think, readily admit, this is not going away. In fact, many regulators have kind of realized that since 2017. I think there's, you know, still some folks who uh, are, are, are skeptical that cryptocurrency is here to stay. But with 100 million users, with uh, 2 trillion in value, uh, with governments now embracing and legalizing officially uh, cryptocurrencies for use, even owning, uh, you know, this, this uh, train has left the station. This is here to stay. We need to learn to live with this. Uh, you know, there are countries like China that can, you know, with their, you know, Chinese uh, firewall uh, and, and very tight control society, probably can be more effective at, at cramp, uh, clamping down on, on use and things like Bitcoin mining. But even the Chinese are having trouble. It was just reported yesterday that in Bloomberg that, um, you know, uh, that, that the Chinese are, are having to do a further kind of uh, crackdown to try to weed out all the cryptocurrency mining that was supposed to uh, been banned and, and 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 ceased to happen back in the spring. So not even China can can drive uh, interest in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin completely away. And do you think then that we're going to start seeing degrees in crypto assets on college campuses? And are we way behind on that? And are there other countries ahead of us on that? Yes, yeah, so that, that's actually been been already happening in various institutions for some time now. So I think the University of Nicosia. Uh, out of Cyprus uh, was one of the first to offer uh, a certificate. Uh, they have a master's program, uh, and and uh, you know the London School of Economics, where I've done my PhD, has also offered uh, certificates. There's been classes at at schools like uh, NYU, Duke, and other institutions for years. And I do see, I do expect that we're going to continue to see more formal uh, credentials and and educational um, uh, opportunities uh, for. Uh, people looking to learn more about this. But the good news, if you can't get to an NYU or a Duke uh, or a Cypress, even though they, they offer uh, virtual education and, and make it more accessible these days, is there's just an incredible wealth of, of great uh, information available for free uh, through podcasts. You know, we at blockchain.com have our own podcast. Uh, there's a lot of other great podcasts out there. Um, you know, it is tricky. I want to I want to sound a note of caution to to find uh, reliable information, especially if you're coming at this from an investment perspective. Uh, you need to need to be cautious and on guard that that there's people out there sometimes, you know, uh, promoting bad ideas, misinformation. Uh, so you do need to do your own homework on what are reliable sources of information and who who can you count on to get reliable data and and accurate insights. Yeah, you know, it's interesting in doing my research for this podcast with you, I came across a couple of people who are, I, I won't use the word, it starts with an S, it's foul language, but basically S-coins. And, you know, they claim that they weren't touting those coins, but they were, they definitely sounded like they were touting those coins. And of course, they put all the disclaimers in, I'm not an investment advisor, you should, you know, don't take my word for it, but it sounds like there is a lot of garbage out there. Uh, yes, is the is the sad answer, and it's it's typical. You know, when the internet first came into existence, you know, um, it's it's kind of an old adage that you know the you know the first movers are often you know some uh, some nefarious characters who see an opportunity with something new, confusing, complex to exploit it. Uh, we've seen this before. It's happened in the cryptocurrency space. Um, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission has. Uh, Filed a number of successful actions against uh, you know frauds and scams, uh, but you know they can't probably cover everything, and that's after the fact. So even if you did uh, see law enforcement come in and try to help out, 
you know, there could be years uh, before any action is taken and, and, you know, your funds could be gone by then. So you really do have to, uh, especially when you move beyond some of the higher or well researched and, and longer standing crypto assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum, I think really need to do your, your research. And even with those two, again, volatility is, is significant. We hear stories about people um, taking out home equity lines to, to, you know, leverage long into to, uh, a Bitcoin or something. And, and um, you know, you just have to understand that these assets uh, are not as uh, well regulated today as, as other traditional assets like stocks and bonds and whatnot, and are uh, prone to very extreme bouts of volatility. So especially when you start talking about borrowing money to, to buy crypto assets, I get, I get quite nervous and, and tend to, especially for newcomers, strongly advise against doing that. Wise words. Let's move back for a few minutes to the government side. So the obvious risk to governments is the volatility, which you mentioned. What are some of the other major risks to governments in using this asset class? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, Bitcoin as a crypto asset, you know, is again, not playing really in the wheelhouse of central banks, which are primarily concerned about monetary policy, you know, the payment system, and, and therefore, it's, it's not something that's kind of directly challenging uh, today, at least, uh, you know, kind of the, the main space that central banks play in. Uh, having said that, we do see more hedge funds investing in crypto assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum and others like Solana uh, that has it's been performing really well. It was up 10x uh, over the last month. And then, of course, last week had a or, or I guess it was this week had a, a network shutdown where it's offline for a number of hours it, it suffered a spam attack of some kind um, and lost some value but as hedge funds and other traditional players in the financial um, system start to wade into the crypto asset space then you know central banks will also start looking at this from a financial stability perspective and and what happens if you know um, you know traditional players uh, you know wade in, and, and have a lot of exposure. We see a, a 50% drop in the price of crypto assets. Uh, what kind of knock-on effects could that have for the traditional financial system? That's that's something that has received attention from the Financial Stability Board out of Bank of International Settlements in, in Switzerland and, and from the Fed and other, other regulators who are concerned with systemic risk, wanting to avoid a 2008-style meltdown and, and possibly seeing crypto assets playing a role in that. I think if you look further ahead, and, uh, and and part of, you know, you know, an old candidate the attraction of something like Bitcoin to many people are concerns around the financial stability of the, the global economy, you know, specifically, you know, the U.S. dollar, U.S. debt levels. And, uh, you know, could we see something even worse than 2008 if we had a, a real run on the dollar? Uh, you know, deficits are, are climbing. And, uh, you know, no one really knows how much debt is too much. In my view, the U.S. is still probably in a pretty relatively, historically at least, uh, reasonable level of debt. Uh, we've seen countries like uh, Great Britain after World War II achieve a 270% debt to GDP ratio at peak. Uh, the U.S. is less than half of that currently. Japan is currently above 200%. So, again, the U.S. is not um, butting up against some of the historical high watermarks on debt to, to GDP. Um, Having said that, there is no magic level at which you know investors lose confidence in in the debt and the creditworthiness of a sovereign country. And we already know, you know, investors like Stanley Druckenmiller, Paul Tudor Jones, who famously come into the Bitcoin space in the last twelve months, have have talked openly about their concerns about Fed policy, the U.S. dollar, the future of 
you know, sovereign debt, uh, and and that's been a driver of their interest in Bitcoin. So one kind of, you know, kind of uh, dark scenario, if you will, that that you know is is uh, not inconceivable is that a sudden panic were to occur, and and we've called this kind of the great mother of all financial crises, where you know there's a massive run on the dollar or U.S. Treasuries into say something like Bitcoin or crypto assets. And it happens too quickly uh, and, and creates a crisis. And I think that's something that the crypto folks should should not want. I think uh, this, you know, if we are moving to a world where we're going to uh, have, you know, similar to the separation uh, between church and state, separation between state and money, you know, that's a, a scenario that's not inconceivable. You could debate how desirable that is. But if we are moving to that world, uh, you know, then, then I think it needs to move in a measured, managed way to not lead to a crisis. That would trigger a big backlash, in my view, against cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And we discussed a few moments ago, the fraudsters, you know, maybe trying to talk up certain crypto assets. Can bad actors also exploit the blockchain system itself? Yes, so blockchain networks like Bitcoin have an inherent uh, vulnerability, uh, which is often characterized as a 51% attack. And what this is, is basically a bad actor getting control of 50% or slightly more of that, or even less, you can, you can monkey and cause problems uh, with, with less than 50% of the computing power that, that powers a network like Bitcoin. And what that could allow you to do, we've seen this actually with smaller cryptocurrencies whose computing networks are more easily attacked and don't have the same massive amount of computing power uh, as Bitcoin and Ethereum have. Uh, but we've seen, you know, for example, what's called double spending attacks, where in essence, you know, uh, you, you take your coin and you're able to spend it in two different places and get away with that. Uh, having control of the computing network enables that kind of activity and, and bad actors have, have made off with tens of millions by, by robbing in essence cryptocurrency exchange by you know, looking like they're depositing the coin at the exchange and then kind of unwinding that transaction through their control of the computer network, retaining the coin and have, having already cashed it out into something else. Um, so, so this is a, a real threat. In the case of Bitcoin, it's not um, something that is, is easy to pull off by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, the uh, difficulty of, of achieving a 51% attack against the Bitcoin network, I think, you know, could almost be insurmountable. It would, it would potentially cost billions and billions of dollars in computing hardware, uh, which today with chip shortages are, are not easy to come by to begin with. Uh, it'd be hard, it'd be hard to keep something like that, something like that secret. Uh, and it would be very counter, um, would be very uh, self-destructive in some ways, because if you did attack the network and you'd made this, you know, multi-billion dollar investment in, in Bitcoin mining hardware, which can't be repurposed really for, for much else, uh, you might destroy the value of that. Uh, and it might be very temporary and fleeting, by the way, because uh, these kinds of attacks, there are mitigation strategies. You can change the algorithm, which renders that equipment uh, obsolete. And, and, uh, and, and that would be one way to secure the network following such an attack. So uh, it, it's a complicated topic. The short answer is yes, they, they are uh, attackable, um, but we haven't seen a successful attack against Bitcoin yet. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't expect one, frankly. And how harmful to the environment is Bitcoin mining and why? Yeah, another, another great and very controversial question. Uh, so, you know, there's no doubt about it that Bitcoin is consuming a lot of electricity. And one of the 
exciting things as a researcher about Bitcoin is that that energy consumption is, is relatively transparent because the Bitcoin network uh, is, is open source and, and you can view key metrics that allow you to kind of estimate uh, how much energy is being consumed. And it's true that it, you know, the level of energy that Bitcoin is consuming today is, is equal to uh, a small country, you know, countries the size of Finland and, uh, and other countries of that size are often mentioned. Um, so is that a concern? And I, I think there, there's some reason to be um, concerned about uh, particularly, you know, uh, more harmful sources of energy to the environment like carbon, or sorry, like, like coal. Um, but having said that, you know, this Chinese mining crackdown that happened in the spring uh, and we, we believe that prior to the crackdown, at least half, roughly, or more of all Bitcoin mining was happening inside China, which does still use a lot of coal today to, to, you know, to mine Bitcoin and do other things uh, for their energy, energy needs. You know, that definitely reduced the amount of uh, coal-powered Bitcoin mining. And we've seen a huge uh, amount of Bitcoin mining move to North American markets where there's more hydro, uh, flared gas, uh, and other renewables. And I think this problem is going to get solved uh, over time. So the short answer is today it's not ideal, um, but over time as we make the grid more renewable and we build out more wind and solar, which are already the lowest cost uh, sources of energy uh, in many cases, I, I think that that we're going to see actually not only Bitcoin mining and energy use become a lot cleaner, but we're actually going to see Bitcoin mining drive the build out of renewable infrastructure and accelerate uh, the world transition to wind, solar and other sources of renewable. So my view is it's gonna actually play a positive role in actually helping to accelerate because it can help subsidize a lot of this expensive solar and wind infrastructure. Bitcoin can play a key role in, in helping to kind of load balance uh, intermittent energy sources like solar and wind. I've been reading a lot about non-fungible tokens or NFTs. In your view, do you think this is a fad? Is it already an asset class? Might it become a long-term asset class? I, I think non-fungible tokens are here to stay uh, for a number of reasons. It's definitely one of the, the big stories of 2021. We saw a, a real swing up in, in interest in non-fungible tokens, which have been around since 2013. You often see this in the cryptocurrency space. Something gets invented. People experiment with it for a few years. It doesn't quite catch on or it has a kind of a moment like non-fungible tokens did in 2017 with the crypto kitties uh, uh, burst of interest in these, these digital cats that, that uh, were created on top of the Ethereum network. And then again, at the beginning of the year, uh, real interest, mainstream interest in things like NBA top shots. These are little video clips that have been digitized and, and ownership of those, of those um, you know, images and video clips uh, are, are kind of linked to a blockchain address to make them unique. Uh, so you as the holder of that, 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 that non-fungible token, that digital asset can, can actually have a unique claim on a given blockchain to, um, you know, in the case of the NBA top shots, you know, that video clip, uh, we've seen pieces of art, digital art selling for tens of millions through Christie's. Uh, you know, we've also seen a, a boom recently again, uh, in non-fungible tokens, uh, crypto art, uh, you know, the crypto punks, uh, uh, drawings, uh, digital, digital artworks, uh, I believe Visa bought one for roughly about 150,000 US dollars. Uh, some of these are going for millions. I think it's important though, with anything new like this, non-fungible tokens, to understand that we don't really know what the long-term value uh, of these 
uh, are going to be, and and there's a speculative mania going on, uh, and so prices could be even more volatile than we've seen with things like Bitcoin, uh, and we're also seeing you know examples of kind of bad actors, unfortunately, you know manipulating or taking advantage of their of, of the non fungible token kind of newness. Uh, there was just a this week, uh, a product manager at OpenSea, one of the biggest marketplaces for non-fungible tokens, was found out to have actually been front-running uh, OpenSea customers with, with that person's knowledge of what NFTs are going to be prominently displayed on the OpenSea marketplace, buying those in advance, expecting the price to appreciate because of their privileged advertising position. Uh, supposedly, that person's been fired. But, but this is all, I, I mentioned that example to highlight that this is a, a new space uh, it's not regulated uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the same way that traditional uh, asset markets are. And you might see things like wash trading, fake trading, uh, insider trading as a result. And uh, people need to be cautious. But I would just I guess one thing I would just add is, you know, like how new or real, how real are non-fungible tokens? There's new capabilities uh, that non-fungible tokens create to, for example, artists. And I would just highlight one thing in particular. Um, you know, traditionally, you know, when a Jeff Koons or someone like this early in their career sells a piece of art, uh, you know, and that that art only goes for hundreds of dollars or, you know, a very relatively small sum of sum of money compared to what that, their art goes for later down the road. In Koons' case, tens of millions, uh, you know, Koons doesn't get uh, didn't get a, a cut of that subsequent sale when that artwork appreciated massively. Uh, all, all the artist gets is what they sold it for initially. What's really exciting about a non-fungible token from an artist perspective is that you could actually program into the non-fungible token a, a rule that will give you a royalty payment or a cut on subsequent secondhand uh, marketplace sales. And those funds, your cut would, ask, would, would automatically uh, be um, deposited in your cryptocurrency wallet. And I think that's a pretty neat new capability that certainly is attractive to artists, especially once uh, you know getting started in their careers, who oftentimes would miss out on on a boom later in their artwork. Yeah, very clever. Makes a lot of sense, and the artists probably should get that cut. So as long as it's disclosed up front, good for the artists. Areas outside the financial sector that uh, blockchain can help, for example, the provenance of uh, certain goods. Is that something that is growing today? And if so, how? Yes, this has uh, long been an interest, like all the different use cases of blockchain technology beyond its use for currency and, and is, is it an investable asset? And, um, and, and uh, you know, we've seen a whole wide variety of things. Um, you know, I, I measured at one point years ago over 100 different use cases uh, ranging from, uh, you know, like, using it for for recording and uh, music royalties and, and and automating the payment of those to tracking food through a supply chain uh and and so on or clearing and settlement infrastructure there have been a number of high profile efforts from from former wall streeters turned blockchainers trying to develop kind of next generation exchange infrastructure and some of this is 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 starting to happen uh, I think there was a lot of hype and, and over-promising back when this became hot in 2015, and that's when the term blockchain, uh, you know, became uh, a buzzword. Uh, but but we've um, we've seen some, I think, early promising examples of of the use of blockchain technology for things. I'll just come back to the food supply chain analogy because uh, or example because I actually did some work directly on this with the UK government and the Food Standards Agency there. 
um, using a blockchain type system to uh, keep track of uh, food as it moves through a supply chain. So recording, you know, the movement of meat, say from the farmer to the veterinarian, to a butcher, you know, to the grocery store, to your plate, uh, you know, from, you know, from farm to fork is kind of the catchphrase uh, that was developed around that. And someone may ask, well, why would you do that? Well, uh, you know, in, in the UK, uh, sadly, you know, it's been quite some time now, there's been, you know, outbreaks, you know, in the past of, of very deadly diseases, mad cow disease, and this is not unique to the UK. Uh, and and when, when you have an outbreak, uh, you know, that, that uh, threatens human lives, you know, understanding where an animal was and where something might've gone wrong and having that record, that tamper resistant record, it can be incredibly valuable. Uh, now, you know, you might ask, well, wait a minute, can't that be manipulated? You know, the cow doesn't live on the blockchain. Uh, and that's true. You do have some challenges around data entry and, and you know, making sure that, you know, uh, you don't have a garbage in, garbage out situ situation. Remember a blockchain is like a database. You put bad data in like this cow was here, but it was actually somewhere else. You know, uh, that's that's not ideal. Having said that, you know, even if you have bad data, we learned from this uh, from this food standard agency pilot of blockchain technology, uh, that's better than no data uh, because, you know, you might have something that you can say, wait a minute, you know, this someone reported this. We don't think that's the case. You have a tamper resistant record of some data. Uh, and there's other clever ways you can you can use to try to, like, minimize uh, you know, data entry risk, you know, things like putting GPS tags on, on, on cows and, and, and whatnot. Um, but there's always this kind of challenge around with uh, a non-digitally native asset, like a cow, um, Bitcoin's digitally native, it only lives on a blockchain, cow doesn't. Uh, how do you, how much should you invest in this issue? I would argue that in the case of food security, food supply chains, given the very high costs of something going wrong, and the relatively low cost of employing blockchain, there's a good good business case to be made for that. So you were introduced to me as an expert in blockchain, and I think this podcast will be really interesting to my listeners to get a real education on what it's all about, as well as crypto assets. How did you get into this? How did you become so knowledgeable? What interested you in the topic? Uh, so I have a bit of a strange uh, background. I worked in Silicon Valley in tech and finance before heading off to the London School of Economics to do my PhD. Uh, under the supervision of of, uh, of an economist and an, an economic historian, Albert Richel and Neil Ferguson, respectively. And I think it, it, that kind of strange uh, kind of jungle gym career that I had where I'd worked in tech, worked in finance, was studying economics, was studying history, uh, and it was a bit more tech savvy than a lot of my uh, peers in economics, really helped me kind of grasp the, the significance of Bitcoin when I first learned about it in 2011, its potential. And, and see it for more than just, oh, this is gold 2.0, and we know the gold standard was really bad. And that's what a lot of e economists, when they looked at Bitcoin for the first time, kind of saw. They didn't see this as a database system, as something that could lead to all sorts of new innovation on top of it, like non-fungible tokens, like decentralized finance. And I think we're still learning what this uh, technology can do. But um, it's a very multidisciplinary uh, phenomenon. And, uh, you know, it's a, just an incredibly exciting and interesting technology as well, uh, one that has potentially profound implications for how we uh, live our lives and how society is organized. So it's fascinating intellectually. Uh, it's, it's having a huge impact. And I think it ultimately also has a lot of promise. You know, one of the, come back to El Salvador, one of the things that I think is positive about what, what's happening there is, 
you know, right now, if you want to send money, if you're working abroad, you have family back in El Salvador, you often pay 10% or more in fees and a, and a bad uh, foreign exchange rate conversion in getting your funds, your remittance back to El Salvador. And that was one of the original things that caught my eye was the chance to create competition for the financial system to give uh, another payment rail to people, especially you know those who really can't be can't afford to be paying that 10% fee. Uh, that that's one of I think the most promising uh, you know kind of use cases still uh, for this technology that makes me optimistic about it. I was very pleased to interview Garrick Heilman, the head of research at Blockchain.com and a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. He shared some very useful information about blockchain technology and crypto assets, including how some governments are using crypto assets, how they're regulating it, the potential for fraud in crypto assets, and much more. I hope you found it interesting and informative. And if you did, please do share it in my other podcasts with your friends and family. You can listen to The Diplomat on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat. Brought to you by Newsweek. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.